This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Hello and welcome to the Noise Careers Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon. And before we get started today, you might have noticed something new. That is that we are a part of the Jabberjaw Podcast Network now. I'm really excited about this because there's lots of podcasts I really, really enjoy on here. I've long loved episodes of 100 Words or Less, Pure Pleasure, Washed Up Emo is one I listen to constantly. I've been really liking, and particularly if you miss what we used to do with Off the Record, I think Managemental and The Future of What both do really, really cool things. And there's tons of other ones on there that I have not gotten to dive into that I'm looking forward to check out. Oh, I should also say I really enjoy Mike Herrera's Hour. He's done some great episodes, particularly with with Ryan Holiday and the Modern Vinyl podcast is always, always excellent as well. So if you haven't gone deep, I highly suggest you go a little deeper on them. With that house cleaning said, this episode, I talked to Mike Ottinger. This one's a particularly big one for me because Mike is the partner in my studio and we co-produce records together. You may know him from working on Man Overboard, Transit, The Menzingers, Somos, and so many others that we've done together and apart. He's also done really great records producing stuff for bands like Lady Radiator and all sorts of others on his own. Mike has been at this for quite a while, and we're both based out of Union City, New Jersey, where our studio is. I should also mention Mike is the person who edits this podcast every week, so he's heard it all. And in this episode, you'll get to know him a little bit better. After you do so, check out his Noise Creators profile, check out his discography, his bio, get to know him a little bit better. There's a really good Spotify playlist of things he's done there, as well I'm going to remind you yet again, I have a new book out. If you like this podcast, you'll probably enjoy it. Processing Creativity, the tools, practices, and habits used to make music you're happy with. It's all about how to avoid the creative pitfalls. It's out on audiobook. If you like this podcast and want to have more of it, I highly suggest you check it out there. ProcessingCreativityBook.com if you want to know more. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Mike. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, 
We're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. What's your chain for recording your voice today? My chain is an SM7B into just an API pre that we have kicking around. Tell me about your background in music. Like every other person, kind of, you know, as a guitar player or wanting to be a guitar player by seeing all the cool guitar players on TV. One of my earliest memories, I think, of music is being in a car with my dad and him being obsessed with, like, Appetite for Destruction and thinking that was, like, what music was. I kind of remember having, like, you know, the aspiration of not doing that nine to five non like garbage that like you know you do a job and you kind of just do it so my whole mentality in my life was figuring out ways to be the best i could be at what i did so as a guitar player i kind of started as guitar and moved to bass and all that but i i kind of always thought of music mathematically i guess because i learned on tabs mm. you know i think everyone starts somewhere and for some reason, tabs worked for me. I remember like going to the guitar centers and like buying the tab books for every Metallica record and just learning. Do you That's... still look at tabs ever? Yeah, yeah. That's how I still learn music if I can't like figure it out by ear. But yeah, I remember that's how I learned guitar is watching, you know, I think watching things helps people, you know, even to this day, I think half of the things I learned was watching someone really good at what they did do it and then kind of not mimic, but you know, take what they did and kind of learn from it, like how I kind of met you and we kind of started our relationship was kind of, I liked what you were doing and I jumped into it knowing what you were capable of doing, but knowing that I can do what you did, but step it up maybe or add something, add my flavor to it. So, yeah, so, you know, from there, guitar, uh, learned every Metallica song, still can play that shit. <laughs> Very useful skill. Yeah. I mean, you hear me talking to the guitar players, you know, that we work with, just what would James Hetfield do? It's all about the downstrokes, so. Yeah. It's all about the downstrokes. Well, I mean, with that being said, too, with the downstrokes, it's, you know, there's reasons for everything in music, and a lot of people don't even realize why, you know, the downstrokes work. You know, like, no one, I think people think that the alternate strumming pattern was kind of started from lazy guitar players singing a song and not being capable of actually doing it. But you look at someone like James Hetfield who fucking shreds. He's fucking singing those songs and playing them downstrokes. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, one of the things I saw, like, when I was researching, I think it's, it might be even John's book on uh, Johnny Ramone. It's like that the reason he was able to do that is he was playing bass first. Oh, yeah. And you know what? That, too, helped me so much as a you know, progressing as like a musician is like, I started as a guitar and then I realized like all the things I really sucked at when I worked with a really good guitar player. Like I think like one of the last podcasts you guys did was talking about like the imposter syndrome mm -hmm. and like, I'm not the greatest guitar player. I know that, but that's one of the reasons I gave up trying to be in a band, you know, like I knew I couldn't technically get it. I knew if I put my time into it, I could. But, like, I didn't want to sit there and be that nerd to be like, oh, look at this sweep I could play and, like, look at the guitar solo. It was, like, it was fun. And then, but you wanted to play drums. You wanted to play bass. You 
you wanted to do everything else. So being able to kind of like do every instrument kind of dragged me into being an engineer. Like I was the person in the band who, when I was in bands, who always gave 110% and everyone else was just like, oh, I'll show up and, oh, sorry, I can't come to the show because, you know, I have baseball practice or some <laughs> shit, you know, and, you know, it sucks when you put in the time and so many bands we work with sometimes it's like that one person who kills it. And then there's like that one, he's like, Oh, it's like Mike, our bass players, like really like the fourth, like guitar player that we kicked out. But like, <laughs> he's our like best friend and like, he can drink a lot and he like, or he drives the van or like some nonsense. It's like, really like you're going to have that. That's the reason for being in the band. Not like he shreds. Well, I mean, I think there, there, there is something to be said for how many bands have had that person. It's just knowing to not let them play on the record. Yeah, yeah. But you know what's funny, too? Like, I was listening to, like, some podcast the other day, and they were talking about, like, ACDC. Mm -hmm. And then, like, the person who was talking about it, like, he named every single member of every single band from, like, Aerosmith to Rolling Stones. It's like every single person in those bands were great musicians. You know, they all could play. They all did different shit. Like, they weren't just in one band. They were all, like, session musicians or they were doing everything for everyone. Or they, like, they found their niche and they did it. There's also, though, that argument, though, for, like, uh, I like to use Radiohead as the example, though, of, like, that somebody in that band always gets the fuck out of the way of everybody. Yeah. And, like, you never thought anything of the drumming on a Radiohead record till like, maybe Hail to the Thief. Like, they started doing interesting things with drums, but usually it was just pretty... You know, nothing that anybody couldn't play who's been playing for four years. And I think there is something to be said for also that sometimes the happy accident is that the people who don't try that hard are the ones who stay out of the way to let the others shine. Yeah. Yeah, but I think you and I both know that, like, circumstantially, like, every time we try to go into a record being like, oh, we're going to do this, it never fucking happens. Music is, and, you know, personalities with the people, you know, you're dealing with so many different variables of how things can go down, and, like, one bad day can fucking make the best song on the record really get fucked up because, you know, someone's girlfriend called them and did X, Y, and Z, or someone got a parking ticket or something stupid, you know, like, and that's the thing, you know, with, with you know, your book and all this stuff about like emotions and things like it's what a lot of people don't get is like coming to the studio it's you should be so prepared that you just want to fucking spill the shit out mm -hmm. and like sometimes it's like i'm the person who's like caring so much and wanting to spill out my emotions that it becomes my song or you're and it's not like the band you know which is fine but who wants to make it the same song every every no. time you know definitely not so so we, we got a little off track, but uh, <laughs> yeah. let's get back to Where, how, how you music. transitioned to a producer. So I grew up in Bergen County, New Jersey with, you know, so the the scene that I grew up in was actually pretty booming. Like most of the bands that were around the area were getting signed. You know, a lot of my friends were really successful musicians and some of them still are. And But there was just something about this North Jersey scene, you know, around my, when we were growing up, you know, Census Fail was around from the area, My Chemical Romance, Saves the Day just had came out, you know, previous from them. So that scene was just killing it. And, you know, fortunately, some of my friends were playing in bands and my band I kind of gave up on because I realized early that being in a band's kind of like having five girlfriends and they all kind of, you know, 
don't do anything for you, yeah. <laughs> but cause problems. Yeah, I realized that early and I wanted to get, you know, I saw the business side of it and I didn't want to be like the A&R, you know, deal with that. So I really wanted to still be creative and work with musicians. And I loved every type of music. Like I didn't hate like anything other than country, really, which I still can't fucking stand it's a very typical thing yeah so i i enjoy metal like i mean i grew up with metallica but you know i also love softer acoustic stuff and indie rock and classic rock and all these things so i think it was right after or during my senior year of high school jono um one of my friends recorded with you and you know you'd recorded madison and I think I really, really liked the Race of Sun record you did. And I think I sent out my senior year of high school. I realized I wasn't going to be, you know, going to college and doing that, like, you know, college life thing. So I ended up messaging, I think, West West Side. I messaged you. I messaged John Niclario at uh, NADA. And I think you messaged me back, like, within the same day or, like, the next day. And I used to be really good at email back then. Yeah. But also, you also turned my band down for recording when I wanted to record with you because I think at the time you were doing the census, you'd just done the census fail record. I think you were so busy. I think you you probably just were like, you know, who wants to fucking record this this no-show band I just recorded census fail type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so uh, you messaged me back immediately and, you know, I wanted to intern and I told you my situation about, you know, knowing Jono, and you were like, yeah, just come and hang out. And I think at that time you were in at Streets. No, we were here. No, because the really? first time I met you, yeah, we you were at Streets finishing the, the Guns Like Girls record. Oh, okay. And that's how I think I met you, and then I ended up, you know, basically going to the studio every single day for the rest of my life yeah. since then. Like, I think I uh, would message you, like, every day and be like, Hey, is it cool to come in? And then you'd be like, yes. And then it became a point you were just like, do you just come in? Just like, if I'm here, just come in. Don't and, fucking And to me. your credit, I had had like, I think almost 100 people come in that year and you were the only one that lasted. Well, you know, I think, I think Alan said it best was like, I was like a wallflower. Like, I know how to like stay away from conversations, but I can also have them when needed. And uh, the most important thing. Yeah. Like, I think that's the biggest thing with when I see even young kids today is like, just shut the fuck up and like, let the band do their thing and you can capture what they're doing. But the more you interfere with conversation and you're wasting people's time instead of being creative and it's tough, you know, so. I've been reading this book called Awkward right now. It talks about all the, the how many dozens of studies there are that um, if you just let other people talk about what they're interested in, that they then think you're interesting. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's the worst life hack of all time, but it is hilarious. But you and, know, you know how many dumb conversations though, like you have that are just like, "Hey, how are you?" Mm-hmm. Like, you know how long that conversation can last after mm-hmm. asking that question? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like sometimes, you know, and dur- during that when like you have a guitar player sitting there with a guitar in his lap who just tuned it and it's like, you know, tuning a guitar and keeping it in tune, unless you have an Evertune, it's insane. So, you know, and then he starts riffing and then you have a conversation with someone and the guitar's out of tune because he was playing a guitar solo and bending <laughs> strings and stuff. It's like, come on. So, tell us about your studio that we're sitting in oh, right now. the studio. <laughs> so, yeah, going back to uh, to how I met you, you met 
Jono recording his band and he was like one of my better friends and his dad was the landlord to this crazy building in Union City which most of you who've come here know is like the housing of like the Manhattan Project during World War II for like scientists so it's a huge full city block building 18 foot ceilings it's got like this crazy vibe that you walk in and you kind of feel the history of the building because of how old it is. And the other cool thing is, is that we kind of had freedom to do whatever we wanted to do. And we kind of still do. We're really the only people in our, in our hallway. And we have like basically our building to ourselves. We could record anytime, you know, and it's pretty sweet. It's actually the third space we've been into. We, it's true. We built... When we first came in, when I first started working for you, which was actually probably one of the best experiences of just, you know, as a young adult, like getting an idea of, you know, work ethic is, you know, building your own studio from ground up. You realize the amount of work and if you're going to do it, you got to do it right. And doing it right is not easy. And the first time I think we did it, we like we got to a point and we did as much as we could to get it the best it could be. And then I think we had to move spaces just to get rid of like the live room because there was an, we had dialect down at the other end of the hall, which ended up moving out of here. And we ended up taking over their spot. So in between those, we had like control rooms and isolation booths, but yeah, we, uh, we built basically three studios, it demolished them, took the, like the stuff we had and then repurposed it and then built it again. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, if anyone has ever moved sheetrock in their life and like realized like carrying it up a flight of stairs and drilling it into a wall, the pain of doing that in like reverse of <laughs> ripping it off of a wall that like knowing what you did to have to get it up there is it sucks. But uh not fun. Yeah, so that actually I think helped too because, you know, I think Alan came down and, you know, he he, he you know, other than your knowledge that you learned from him, which, you know, was tremendous for my career, because basically I, I learned everything I did from you or Alan or, you know, Evitz when we worked with him or, you know, really anyone, a lop or all, all these people I was kind of surrounding myself with. I would kind of always try to, you know, keep that in mind, too, is that, that I was surrounding myself with people who I knew I could respect and like, you know, they weren't going to fuck with me or like try to dick me over. I think that's maybe like, a lop. <laughs> well that's something else you know how many times i walked in on him without a shirt on and <laughs> yeah so now we're in this like you know kind of more finely like tuned studio with we put a lot of time and effort into building the sound clouds and god those skyline diffusers that we cut up which are cool too because you know they're on wheels and we can move them around and the drum room like is sounding the best it's ever sounded so yeah that's the studio we got basically every amp that you'd ever want to play plus tons of drums tons of guitars yeah so we kind of went through it what instruments do you actually play guitar bass drums i can't play but i know what they should sound like and how they should be played and what what it takes to get them to be played right which is i also think is another thing that you know, is important to like focus on is, you know, practicing the proper technique. And I don't think a lot of people realize this too, is that I actually edit these podcasts. So I've heard this question about in all these <laughs> questions more than anyone can imagine. <laughs> and <laughs> the one thing about like making mistakes is just the practicing is like 
people who show up to practice instead of actually practicing or thinking that practice is this playing the song and you know it's not it's it's fixing the parts that are weak or fixing the parts you can't play right or every time you guys have a show the you know the set falls apart because you know the lead is too complicated to play it's like those are the parts you should be practicing so so yeah as a player I don't play drums I, you know I know how to make them sound good and all that which you know I think that's how I actually started tracking with you too is I uh, was teching for Jono who was a drummer and I couldn't play drums, but I always was into getting things to sound right. Like I was a gearhead with amps and with guitars and really with just having, you know, the ability to have something in front of you and try to get it to sound the best it can be, you know? And I think that was one of the philosophies you've always had too, is like, we didn't, we don't have tons of gear or like outboard gear, oh. but like we have tons of, of amps and things, but like we also, got to a point where we had things that we knew what sounded best and that's what we have like why would we have like 10 amps that are like they're cool but like you know they're not the why would we use them over you know the other amp that sounds a million times better that we know the results for you know and a lot of this i think is you know cutting out that middle factor of guessing and being like well i don't know what this sounds like i think me and you both can sit down and be like you know yeah every record we start with yeah it, we say the same amp choices because we know what they sound like and what the band is aiming for you know the more records you do and the more variety of of music you listen to and record the more the ability of for that to happen it's knowing your tools well enough to know what they call for instead of just having so many and having to wonder every time and while it does take experimentation i yeah. think too many people don't look at that right if you have 65 options and you're always experimenting you're also losing your objectivity there should be little bits of experimentation at a time too much experimentation actually is counterintuitive so so with that it goes into the next question we have the steve albini side versus the john feldman side how involved in songwriting do you like to get as much as the band wants me to be i think it's easy for most producers to to play anything on any of their recordings because they know they know how it should sound but it's going to sound like them you know who wants I guess I would want to hear like Rick Rubin do everything on a record, even though I don't think, he, I don't know really what he plays, but it'd be interesting to, to see everything that he would want to do. Cause I, I think a lot of it is just guiding other people's opinions to be like, yes, that's the best thing you can do. Not like what I would do. And this is, this is your, ver this is my version. And then you should just play it, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, instead of, Hey, you should play a bunch of things. And when I hear something that's really cool or worth, you know, keeping, or I think is like the right thing. And if you haven't figured it out yet, yeah, I could tell you that all the time. I could be Steve Albini. I could be John Feldman. I can be whatever you want me to be, baby. So uh, what do you think you bring to records most often? Objectivity. I think me and you are pretty real. Like we're not going to beat around the bush. <laughs> if something sucks, we're going to tell you it sucks, you know? And so, but my favorite thing is when everybody says, uh, be sure to tell me your opinion. It's like, oh, you're not going to be saying that by the end. Yeah. But you know what, too? It's it's not, and I think that that's another thing. It's never malicious. And no. I think that's like, musicians can be so sensitive and it can be so butthurt by just being like, dude, just because like you did a finger tapping part that you wrote on a, on a song doesn't make it fucking cool or like the right part. Like if, if it doesn't work with like, the bass or the drums or the vocals, like it doesn't work. You're, it's cool, you can play it, but it's it's doesn't matter. So I think that's kind of... Well, I think the malicious thing you, you got into there is a key is that 
trying to make musicians understand that this is being on a side that you're not going to force ego and dominance. Like I, the, one of the things I think that we always try to do. And one of the reasons you and I have gotten along so well is that we don't feel the need to dominate people and force some alpha male bullshit on people. We just try to figure out what the song is. And I see so many producers and hear about so many producers who just think their way is better than everybody's where we're trying to find what will work to make the best version of them. Yeah. Well, the alpha male thing is funny too, because when an alpha male does sit in a room with a bunch of people, like with me and you, it, it's not that it doesn't work. It's just comical because it's like we could be that person. Like we could sit there and, and be that that dick. But there's always a better way to say something. There's always a way to like put your put yourself in a perspective of someone else. And I think that like if someone came in with the idea that they wanted to do something, hopefully they put some time and effort into the idea. So you can't just call it stupid. And I think that's so counter like productive to be in a, like you know, like we're saying the studio of like a creative space and to be afraid to say or to do something that you want. I think it bothers me more than anything when someone apologizes after a take, <laughs> yeah. you know, like when they're like, sorry, sorry, sorry. It's like, it's cool, man. Like I want you to like almost try to like run at full speed. And if you fall in, on your face, it's cool, man, because I know you're trying at like your fullest potential or you're trying your hardest to get like the best result. And I think that's so sad that like people can't look through that like I think some of the best records we did it was just no one was afraid you know it was just like they knew what they wanted they came in with a vision they had an idea of you know the end product and it was either we worked as hard as we could to achieve that thing and then we did or if we tried to do it and we missed we would just go back and fix it you know and I think the ability to do that is so much better than to sit there and nitpick over and be like oh my guitar lead is a little like off time or like you know all these stupid little nuances that people care about now it's it's silly oh I think it's also people underestimate like I know when I would hear it before I understood it that you need to have an environment where mistakes are not a problem that they're celebrated that get making mistakes should be a good thing that you should never have to apologize for them that that that's how we get to good ideas is making lots of mistakes and while that sounds really inefficient that's how creativity works and getting to that environment and getting people to understand that is so crucial and the saying i'm sorry for everything means that person doesn't understand that but part of the environment yeah well, also, it's funny, we we're just talking about the sorry thing, but like being like a new father, there's like this thing about having the fault, like saying things falsely and saying sorry and it not even having meaning, like mm. forcing someone to say something that they don't mean is just going to make them continuously during their life say things without meaning. Like the worst thing you could do is to force a child to say sorry because you know, every time they say it, they're not going to know why they said it. They're just mm. going to say it, you know? So I think that That's goes, interesting. there's a lot of things I think that psychologically that happen with people that, you know, with the sorry thing, you know, it, if you're going to say sorry, you should at least mean it. And you're not oh, yeah. sorry for fucking up your guitar riff. So, you know, it's, and if well, you, are, and people, if you are, are, yeah. <laughs> and if you are, I'm really, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm you, you sorry. Feel sorry for them. <laughs> yes. I am sorry. Yes. What's a common mistake you see bands do before coming to the studio? Don't be afraid. Like if you're in a band with someone and you're afraid to have a conversation with them about their parts or like if you think that your drummer's like sloppy or something like and you can't find a way to say that to them without them or being afraid of the consequences, 
I mean, I think that's a huge mistake that you're like, you're in a band with someone that you can't honestly communicate with. And it goes down to just that simplicity thing that we were just like, just being sloppy or like, hey, like, hey, man, like sometimes when you hit your cymbals, like you're kicking your ride, they flam a little bit. Like maybe you should work on that. Like you should be in a band where you should be able to turn to the person next to you and say like, hey, man, you should be able to work on this or like work on that and go around the circle and not be like you fucking asshole or like it turned into a fight. And like, it's crazy to me how, you know, bands have band members that they don't like. And um, a lot of that not liking comes down to also that they've just communicated with them so bad, badly that yeah. there's animosity built up. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's unfortunate, but you know, I think it's like a maturity thing. And I think sometimes like, you know, bands or people are, are in bands because they have like some type of immaturity to them. Cause not all musicians are immature, but like mm -hmm. there's some kind of rebellious thing that most people have when it's associated with music or punk rock or rock and roll or whatever. And, you know, especially with punk rock and you're dealing with people who don't want to be told what to do, you know? So no, and, you know, even you and I have had to, I think some of my greatest personal growth has come from you and I having to get along for 11 years while being really stressed. And obviously, like any two people, I think of anything, you and I are similar in so many ways that we have less fights than other people. But yes, we also have had fights and we've had to learn how to deal with each other over the years and Absolutely. do those things. And like. I think that comes down to, too, with, you know, our personalities. And, you know, I was kind of touched on it before. Like, as, like, I was growing up, I always could pick out of the room those people that, like, had friends, but they were so fake. And, like, you knew if you became friends with them, you would kind of get, like, kind of pushed in this direction of, like, that you're, like, you weren't who you were because they were in control of everything that they did. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it wasn't, like, you being yourself. Sure, we're thinking of the same people. Yeah. <laughs> So I think that um, with you and me, like you were older than me and it, like I could look up to I you. I still am, not even were. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I'm talking about when I first met you. And at that age, you were actually my age now because we're 10 years, um, you know, 10 years, years apart, 11 years apart. Sorry. And I think that, you know, like you were kind of like my big brother and, but it was like, you were a goofy big brother that like I could talk to you about like girls and shit like that. And like, you know, like I think, that that was something that was huge in my like my growth because I was able to have people I could trust and like not worry about like saying the wrong thing or I mean I didn't really do that much and if I did I would do it behind closed doors you know yes. um but like I think a lot of it is is you know being around the right people and trusting your gut and knowing like you know if you don't like something in someone's personality it's always going to come back you know and it's it's going to be so much harder to deal with it down the road like five years in when you're like even more in, into an attachment and to whatever relationship it is it's tough man so so I think with me and you we had always had like that common like if you if you saw it one way I kind of wanted to see your perspective. And if I saw it one way, you tried to see my perspective. And that's actually exactly what a producer should be doing. You no, know? Uh, the smartest practice is when somebody says something to you that's a critique, is not assuming it's out of malice and out of ego, even though some people it is, is also trying to see the truth in what they say. And Oh, yeah. In, in any form of relationships, you know, you, you know, me and you talking about girls and stuff, you know, it's, it's thing, like yeah. it goes down to every form of your life. So, so what's the coolest piece of gear studio has? 
so I have a 1976 Fender Precision Bass that my dad's friend bought in 1980 and played it for a week. And one day he came over to my house like for a family party and, you know, he's like, oh, Mike, you're a musician, right? And I was like, yeah. And he kind of just uh, explained to me how he was going through his attic um, that weekend and he found all of his old music equipment and he wanted me to come over and he didn't know what he had. So I like go over to his house and I remember like, you know, he had kind of it all set aside and I remember seeing the case and I'm like, okay, it's like a fender. So that must be fucking, it must be something good. And I opened up the the case and it was like a pristine 1976 P bass that was never used, had brand new strings on it. Uh, and he had like a, an old concert sun amp and some other old valve estate like combo that you know actually sounds really really awesome but uh the sun combo right no this was uh that's the 450 it's just a number but it apparently it was made by like vox or univox uh it's like one of the yeah it's like one of the first uh valve estate amps actually um but it sounds sounds awesome um but yeah that was probably the the best piece of equipment and the pretty cool story too of getting a awesome piece for for free how about a smart thing you see bands do during the recording process i think the the smartest thing bands can do is not overplay but not underplay like the bass player will will sit around from nine o'clock in the morning and play all day and like quote-unquote practice the songs in the studio and then when it comes down to when he has to play not being able to do it because of how tired he is so the smart thing for i would say is to practice before the studio and then when you're like in the studio stress stressless so bands that like you know um, find ways to occupy their time and not worrying about like, Oh, when am I going to play? That is like the best thing you can be doing. Like you should be focusing on like when you were, you know, sitting in front of, you know, the computer and recording, you should be trying to make that time your like spill of energy instead of, you know, sitting around and wasting that on stuff that you should have been doing. Also, I think it's really smart when bands know, every other person's parts because i think and this goes to back to the ego like i try to get the, like the best player to play the best part let's say the one kid can play the best palm mutes he's gonna play all the palm mutes you know that's just the way these these records are made now so being able to play a lead riff that isn't yours is great because a you're going to know what the other person's doing but it can also give you an inspiration of how to make your part more like the other parts if you know the drummer's kick drum pattern and you're the bass player you know where you should be landing on certain parts because the drummer has x amount of kick drum beats or something like that i think knowing other people's parts is probably the smartest thing that you could probably do to save time too so what happens when you and a band disagree about something oh i mean it's their music so it's going to be their way but if someone has an idea just record it and listen to it it's, it's a, so annoying to, to like have the conversation about it instead of just being like, okay, take two seconds, record both ways, and then I'll not even tell you which one is which, and then you can listen back to it and, you know, you guys can figure out, you know, blindly without having like that whole like, oh, but this was like my guitar that has like the cool skull inlays, and I know <laughs> that has like more fire in it or some <laughs> bullshit that like, you know, there's like that visual thing that people think of like their guitar is better because it looks cool. It's <laughs> yeah, it really is one of 
of those phenomena I don't think we've ever talked about the podcast like that you and I go through all the time is that like it's just stunning how many people impose the way the guitar looks on the sound yeah. instead of listening to the sound and thinking and reacting to how that sounds and it's just like it really is a funny thing because I don't feel like drummers do it as much. I don't feel like oh, I think that's do. that's not true at all. Mm. I think drummers spend so much money on the shells and the wraps. Are you crazy? no? But like no, 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 no. What I'm more saying is the idea of like you look at the the drums and you're like, oh, they sound like that. Whereas they're doing the shells, and the wraps to look cool. Oh whereas, yes, like, yes, yes. Whereas, but yes. like what I'm saying is this: oh, is like yes. a guitarist <laughs> is like they see a explorer. They're like, oh, that's gonna be cool for my metal riff. <laughs> And really, they don't realize that Explorer has, like, the worst pickup ever put it in. Then they listen to it. They're just like, no, this is the right one. We're going to make it work. We're going to dial tone until this one works. When really, it's like, why don't you just listen to a bunch of things till you emotionally feel the right thing? Yeah. That would be funny, too, if, if it was the opposite way of what we were just saying, though. If, like, if drummers did do that. Because I remember one time some some kid showed up with, like, a Gucci-wrapped drum set. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. A, like a drum set with like a bunch of Gucci like stamps all over it, and it's just so silly. Like really, like I guess so. I'd rather I'd rather have a really awesome sounding drum set that look like shit. You know, I don't care. Let's get into how you feel about some modern production tools. Do amp simulators dash reamping have a role in your productions? Yeah, when uh when needed, you know, scratch tracks are always amp sims reamping you know since i'm technically your like engineer i do a lot of reamping for your mixes and stuff when you're doing stuff and people improperly do stuff so but i mean i've never once tracked di actually that's not true yeah it's pretty rare though. Uh, yeah it's very rare how i've just tracked di and then just reamped it or no i mean we have too many i mean i've always had the opinion that we have the amps and it's a lot different playing and choosing i think we've always committed to amp tones when everyone else has kind of been so afraid to be like i don't think this is right and i think that's something we've always kind of done right is not started recording until we were satisfied and we knew we were at the best tone or the best possibilities that we can get which having two ears too you know on a recording is always great now the objectivity for that definitely is the thing of that you no there's no way to have the same objectivity dialing a tone, and it's the same thing if, like, I come in after you dial a guitar tone for a while just as you listen back when I've tracked drums or vocals and we figure out what's been off. Yeah. Because when you're not in the room for that, you can have better objectivity to not have to also think about, well, I'm going to be the one who has to redo this. Yeah, yeah, that's true. How about sampled-midi drums for your productions? Yeah, I mean, our drum room is pretty awesome, so... We were saying our source tones are great, but we always add a little something underneath them just to give some a little bit more reverb to the snare or something like that. It's never sound replaced or something like that, though. Do you master your own records? No, I have I have you. So, yeah, if if I need to, I could we, we we'll do it together or we'll go through it. But most of the time, I just pass it off. Yeah. So the other thing is the studio kind of runs with my room set up as a tracking room and your room is a mix room. So if I need to mix something or master it, it's just it's more time consuming for for me to do it than it is just to, for me to pass it off to you. You go through your system of of how you do it because you're mixing so much more than me that 
you're kind of mixing 80% of my records that I track. So, which is also, I think, kind of good that I have that objectivity that I can then listen to your mixes after I track the recordings and had my vision and then you put your vision on it and we can do our collab kind of thing. So how long do you like to take to work on a song? A day, day and a half per song. But like everyone says, if you you have a bunch of songs, it's better to, to track drums for all of them and then kind of piece the recordings together. Because if you think about it, the setup for drums is like five hours, something like that sometimes. And yeah, three, th- th- three, uh, three to five. Yeah, and then you, you track one song of drums that's, you know, two, three, four hours, something like that, plus editing, tightening up all the stuff. You know, that's like if you could just blast through a bunch of more songs, it's a lot easier to do that than it is to track one song at a time. So, yeah, one one and a half days per song, something like that. What's a good lesson you've learned from another producer? Well, something that I actually did learn from you, but you learned it from Alan. And I still, to this day, will, you know, it's something so stupid, but it's a concept. I think a lot of things about this quote, too pertain to how production is but it's results not reasons and i think that is with tracking you always want to have the like the best takes and all these things but you could be chasing a dragon sometimes you can be sometimes sitting there and being like is this the best thing and i think the whole results not reasons thing is just get to work and go after what you want to achieve but also keep in mind that like sometimes you get to a point you have to just be like this is the best it is and you can't go back to it over and over and over and and keep chasing like you know the best way because the best way is usually the first way i think that like you know best way is the way you commit to making it as good as possible right that still is uh that you vetted enough to get to a, a good result i think that actually goes to a different alan quote of the pick a format and get to work like i uh I've been trying to relay this to people of like, you know, everybody um, spends so much time trying to think of the best big life change. And it's really like Freakonomics did this like really good episode that you just need to make a choice and then start doing that choice. And that's what matters is doing that choice well. Yeah. But, you know, and, and about that, too, is like everything should have purpose, too. Like why why go through every single day and kind of just go through the motions of it instead of just going through your day and trying to get something achieved, like having a, a, a an end day goal, you know, instead of like a week or a month or a year goal, you know, get through the day, but have something productive done, not onto your belt that, you know, can get you, you know, feeling good about yourself. And, you know, I think that's also something about being a musician. There's so many sad, you know, people that like, you know, getting a pat on the back or getting like acknowledgements from people like that. I think that's what most people are seeking when they're musicians is, oh, that song is awesome. Or like, I want to be the coolest or like the, the greatest guitar player or all these things like, you know, but sometimes it's all about having perspective of yourself, but also, you know, doing the right thing for yourself. And I know that kind of sounds stupid. No, no, that makes sense. What's one of the best moments you've had in the studio? Uh, one of, the, one of the. I'll tell a funny story, because I think there's a lot of good moments, but they're all like about like guitar parts or something stupid. And I think funny moments are better, like meeting people and with this job, you know, you meet tons of different people. And at an early age, I think I was working for you like two or three years at the time, and <laughs> a band shows up from Kentucky and. 
I guess I was, I might have been going to school or something because I was usually, I like lived in the studio. So I would either be here or I'd be upstairs at, the, at like the loft apartment that I had or I'd be at school in the morning. So I came in later for some reason. And I guess you would talk to the band and they were like really like, any chance they got to, they could mess around. And I walked in and they were all completely fucking naked. And I think some of them had like socks on their dicks. Some of them didn't. <laughs> and one of them being the bass player of the band. Yeah, the, we should say the bass player of this band. They were called the bassist's name was Yeah, yeah. And uh, he uh, he had very enormous testicles that, oh, yeah, that's right. that Jesse, I think, had said uh, anyone, the first person to put their balls on Mike gets a free pizza oh yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um... i remember, I remember uh, it was the thing like you hadn't noticed something and i was mad about it and then i uh so i had them put the, their balls on your shoulder and, he, and that guy no whipped, no, no. i was sitting the, yeah i was sitting on the chair out real fast yeah you were like the first person to put their balls on mike gets a free pizza and then i got like okay, swarmed. I was gets to choose the topic of the pizza it wasn't even that good a prize it was a really shitty prize yeah but you got like swarmed or I got swarmed by, like, five fucking huge, like, metal dudes. One being... Yeah. But, yeah, so that record is hilarious because... That was a fun record. They, like, they hung out, like, at the end of the night. One of their... One of the kids got his fucking dick pierced in oh, my yeah. apartment. And then the other kid, which was his brother, wanted to, but they didn't have another needle to use, like, a second oh, needle. Yeah. Oh. Um, oh. So he, he didn't do it. But then they started playing this game, Homosexual Chicken. Yes. And... If you, if anyone doesn't know what that is, it's basically who could do the more homosexual thing to the other person. Like if I were to put my hand on Jesse's inner thigh and he were to swap me away, he would lose. So they were just like trying to touch each other's dicks the whole time, the whole entire time. And there's brothers in the band. Should probably cut their their bad name out of this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Like we think we're gonna have to put a few beeps in this so so, so that they, they don't get any bad job things ever. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, so they keep playing Homosexual Chicken. We finish the record. But as we're finishing the record, they're mixing. So they're in Jesse's room. And I just hear fucking Jesse screaming. And I like I go outside and you explain to me. Maybe you should explain what what Oh, the happened. one brother put... The, 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 they dared the one brother to put his lips on the other brother's dick. <laughs> it was horrifying. Yeah. They were real freaks. Yeah. So that's like, yeah, that's the life of a recording engineer. Tell us one of the worst moments you've had and what you learned from it. All right. So the worst moment I had in the studio was I trusted someone who I shouldn't have trusted and they ended up stealing money from me. Oh, yeah. forgot about that. And you know what? I should probably say the person's name, but I'm not no, going no. to because of how much. But you, le you, you left a couple hundred dollars in your backpack. Yeah, so the gig that it would be safe. Yeah, and what was messed up too is it happened on um multiple occasions. So the band and this is how this is how messed up this is is a bass player from a local band that I grew up with. I'd known for years who I'd recorded in probably three or four different projects. Shows up at a session that we had no idea he was playing on. So he shows up to the session. I'm like, oh, great. You, you know, blah, blah, blah. I know exactly who, who this kid is. He was in X, Y, and in this band, blah, blah, blah. So I knew the kid. And he's from around here. So, you know, I've known him. He's friends with my probably, friends. Yeah, by this point, eight years knowing him. Yeah, though. eight years, something like that. And I recently had broke my ankle 
playing ice hockey. I came in the next day in like a cast and everything and I give crutches. It was awful. And I, you know, I got paid. The band had like their money and like a wad of, a wad of cash and they ended up wrapping it in a, in a rubber band and their money that they paid the first day that were, they were supposed to pay went missing. And they were like freaking out and they were like, we don't know what happened to our money, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't know what happened, man. I'm sorry. That's kind of on you guys. You guys have to figure this out. So the next day, oh, and granted, so that that kid has a rubber band around his, his white castle cup that he's drinking drinking out of. So the next day, and it's kind of like shady and no one wants to be like, oh my, like I would never want to be in a room with someone where I'd be like, oh my God, like, did you just steal from me? Like, I wouldn't even think that someone would come to our studio and know us for this long and like know our reputation and not even as like, not even that, but like as a person and steal because that's this awful and so long story short, the next day he ends up taking, you know, the band ends up t- paying me and I put my money that they pay me in my backpack. And when I get home, my money's missing. And then the next day we set a trap for him and he, they pay me and, uh, you know, we count the money and there's $20 missing when we leave the room intentionally behind him. And he like kind of just bolted and we've never seen the kid since, but I've, I've told every person who's ever encountered the kid about him. I've heard other stories of him trying to walk off with people's pedal boards at shows. Uh, yeah, that's right. That happened right after. Yeah. And like, I I actually recently had another one that, that he, he has like a crazy, he like started a tab somewhere that he didn't pay or some just crazy. Just, and you know, I trusted this person in the studio and they ended up stealing from me and not that I don't want to trust people, but yeah, sometimes you really like have to have everything lock and key, like have serial numbers of pedals written down of guitars, all these things, not even just for, from clients, but you know, dealing with lots of money of gear, you know, you should know exactly what you have and a way of recalling it in case, you know, fires, you know, anything that can happen. So yeah, that was probably to this day, that's, that was like an awful experience. So let's get into your taste in music on a happier note. What's a perfect record someone else has made and what makes it perfect? You know, in the beginning, we we're talking about Guns N' Roses. and I don't think anyone has talked about them at all. I think that's been like one or two, but yeah. Yeah, I, I don't remember really anyone talking about them, but I think they like, you know, Appetite for Destruction. It's like the way I hear that record, I think, is just like it's like flawless just because I can listen to it and not even think about the song. I'm just like, these guys were on fucking fire. Like those records were insane. And, you know, just listening to just the pure emotion of, you know, Axel's voice and like the guitar playing was just it wasn't sloppy, but it kind of was. But it was like it had this raw, like, I don't know, like the guitar slide slash does are so tasteful. And like, I don't know, I always remember that record for being like the most impressionable records of my early youth. So yeah, I'd say that one. Uh, how about three favorite producers? Definitely not Jesse Cannon. Uh, Ruben, you know what? I'm going to probably say Evitz because growing up, and one of the reasons I think I started working with you is be- probably because of Evitz, because the first rec- one of the first CDs I got was through being cool that was i rode my skateboard down to the local record shop like i did like every week and you know that was like when they had like actually releases and like there'd be like a poster in the window and shit it'd be like oh this band's coming out i think i like bought that and like midtown save the world lose the girl and i think like that was just like that record to this day is one of my favorite records and there's just something about you know something that steve does and i think you 
you said it in your interview is that it's like no one can emulate what Steve does. He just does his own thing and it just works. So I'd say him, Ruben, and uh, Ross. Yeah, definitely Ross. Because even I, I, it was weird too. Because I think when I met you, I don't, I don't even know at the time if I knew who you like who you had worked for so like i was listening to records that i think you had worked on that i didn't even know at the time you had worked on type of thing and i think with ross his, his style i think you and him have a very like similar like mentality kind of thing like i've never met him but i feel like i would be very similar to an experience of working with you in the sense that like how you approach things yeah, I mean, I, I I grew up loving him, and then I obviously learned a lot from him when I worked for him. Yeah, but dude, like, just even this, like, those Glassjaw records were some of my favorite records listening to them, and I don't know how, like, you know, some of those things were done with just having, you know, those guys play not to, like, Pro Tools. It's just crazy. Yeah, the first record's tape, and the second record's digital tape. Yeah. Let's go through five of your most important records in your development. First record I can remember was Guns N' Roses, so that it kind of that gave me the the fire hook kind of thing going on. And then I kind of got into like metal. So, I'd say for some reason Metallica and Justice for All was like resonated with me the most for some reason because I think it had like this classical thing going with it. Like it was like metal music with like, it sounded like Mozart playing metal or something because they played like clean guitars over heavy music. It just didn't kind of make sense to me. And to this day, I kind of can't even play some of the riffs because it's just kind of weird to me. But for some reason that kind of gave me the hook to metal. And I think there was a lot of melody to it. Like when people talk about metal and they're like screaming and like, you know, dissonance and stuff, I think Metallica did that cross between metal and pop. Like there was always some type of melody going on. They always had that that pop element to the to the metal that I really liked. So that's the injustice for all after that. Okay. And as that happened, I was getting into like pop punk. So I'd say through being cool, Blink 182. I think the Enema the State one probably was the the one that hit me the best. Even though I did listen to like Dude Ranch and Cheshire Cat or whatever, I think I should have probably said Jerry Finn is one of my favorite producers too, because he to to be honest he probably is, and and that's just so sad because I don't even think about it. But yeah, he's probably done like eighty percent of my favorite records. He has you know that thing that he like Steve. I don't think you can emulate. So yeah, I remember the Blink-182 record too, like playing like Tony Hawk pro skater being, you know, 16 year old skateboarding kid listening to that every single day. And then I'd say after that, I'd say refused shape of punk to come. think that one, I kind of got into like later in life, but that kind of, that too is like, I feel like that's like a, a, a metal record that has melody to it, you know, and maybe that's something I've always kind of chased is something that, you know, it's not produced, but it's like there's something with a hook that makes you want to sing it over and over and over again. It's like there could be something that sounds dissonant, but it also be very catchy or, you know, very heavy, but very catchy. And I think that record specifically just had so many parts after part after part that to this day you could just sing back any of the songs and I think that's kind of you know what makes a great record or a great song is that you can just be like oh yeah like that song like do 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 like you can sing that and you know everyone knows what you're talking about you know and that's kind of cool so I know another one say anything is a real boy 
I think that was not only I think I loved the record before I knew that they did it all with like a line six pod, but I, <laughs> I think that kind of like you know that also opened my eyes to just being like always trying to fu- like use that excuse of like oh well we just had this crappy guitar like oh we just you know we didn't have a good setup or we just didn't use like they use a fucking line six pod so if you actually have good songs and you have you know you know what you're doing and you have a vision you can make something so great and it doesn't matter what gear you use and to this day those songs are just like like that guns and roses thing i think that's actually like almost like a comparison is like the modern guns and roses because that record is just so energetic and there's just like a feeling about that record when it's just on that you can listen to every song and you can sing every word and you can feel exactly what max felt in like certain parts so i think that's pretty cool so lastly what have you been working on we just finished a project with members of somos we just finished a project with wayne from man overboard we just finished lots of stuff that we're not allowed to say yes still that we've, we've been working on for probably two years yeah we're starting up a project with Sean Gardner from Brogues. We did a record with him last summer. Pretty cool, like, rock, I'd say, like, punky rock. We just finished a record with a band called Hot Knife, another band called Brock Landers from New Jersey. We did a a record with Franchise a couple months ago that should be coming out pretty soon, too. And I think that's about it. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can be also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.